0: Hey man! Hey man, how you doing? Bloody hell, you speak loud. <laughs> what is it with you going on podcasts? And it's I just mean...
1: really want to screw the sound up. Just speak at a normal volume. I have no, there's no such thing. I have no normal volume, Ryan. <laughs> Uh How I'm, you? How are you doing? Well... How are you doing? I'm okay. It is New Year's Day. It's New Year's
0: Day. So we were both out last night.
1: Yeah, at a party. Woo. We're committing to to uh, recording uh, on New Year's Day exactly. some commitment to you yeah. guys, our you're, listeners. You're welcome, listeners. You are welcome. <laughs> Enjoy. So, so. for a new guest, first guest? No, the new guest that we have that yeah. you're about to listen to. Or, it
0: is also the first because yes, she is an
1: experimental filmmaker as well as a narrative no. filmmaker. It yes. is Riffi Ahmed. Riffi Ahmed. She's uh, directed Second Unit for Top Boy uh, and directed various experimental films, one of which was a Circa X dazed finalist and was screened on the Piccadilly Circus, which is pretty epic. Yeah,
0: like, you know, those massive billboards yeah. um, on Piccadilly Circus so that were screened there, which is pretty, pretty yeah. damn cool. Yeah,
1: really cool. We talk about Riffy's journey from art school um, and the way she broke into the industry. Yeah, I talk a lot about her working in Second Unit and how,
0: I suppose that path into it which we haven't really explored from shadowing
1: as well she was she shadowed yeah. the director
0: and got into it that way yeah we haven't really explored so much in the podcast so that was like super interesting to mm. hear about mm. that
1: route in i suppose yeah and then also her uh, relationship with um her agent and then yeah i guess her her attitude to work as well and the amount of hustle it takes actually to make it as a director yeah um even after you've got an agent as exactly. well and you know uh, and just just how much work it takes and then uh, and then also her process with, you know, experimental cinema mm-hmm. and that how that differs to her more narrative fiction work as well. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a good one, guys. Let's get into it. Thank you, Riffy, for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on, on a very rainy day in London. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So what we um like to do first is to ask you about, um just telling us a bit about your journey as a filmmaker so far.
2: Okay, uh, so my journey as a filmmaker was pretty unorthodox because um I started out as a painter um, and I went to art school, uh, which was at the time Chelsea and then I went to Central Saint Martins. Um, and my tutor said to me, you have skill, but it's not your calling. No. <laughs> and I, and I was like, what? Oh my god! Like I thought I was a painter, but I was also at the time doing photography. Um, and then my tutor basically saw my photographs and was like, "Your photos are like film stills. Like, have you ever made a film before?" And I was like, "Well, I think I think about like story and cinema a lot, but I I've never actually made one." So he gave me an assignment to make a three minute film, and literally that's what kicked it off because I didn't know I could do it so I had my dad had a camcorder that he got as a present they gave to me so and the assignment was that um you had to shoot chronologically you couldn't edit so I got this like storyline where I got my sister to act in it um I and I did all sorts of stuff and then I showed it um at school and then they were like wow like are you serious? This is really your first film? And I was like, yeah, why do you keep saying that? And they were like, you've really got an instinct for moving image. Um, so I think that's what kickstarted my curiosity into it. Um, so initially it was me, a girl with a camcorder, basically, just starting to, you know, go, what can I do with it? Like, what kind of vision am I trying to interpret? And that's literally, like, the, the beginning of the first. Before a longer journey came
1: when when you picked the the camcorder up did it feel different like did you feel like you could express yourself in a better way than you could when you were doing your paintings
2: absolutely because well at first there was a bit of fear because you got I kind of like picked up the camera thinking okay well this is a camera this is an eye but it's what I put in front of it and there's so much I could be doing with that so like even though this tiny thing is you know this device it's like it's, it's it could carry a whole world in a way um so i was actually really nervous initially because i was just like w- what have i actually got to say that could be told in film um and so yeah i would say that it it was now working in a more 3d space because i guess when you're doing photography and painting it's literally 2d and when you're in art school they're literally like 2d 3d da da da, da and you're like whatever <laughs> just express yourself <laughs> i hope that answers it right
0: yeah and then so you kind of discover you have an aptitude and an interest in filmmaking at art school and then yeah what's the moment or how do you transition to um going to film school after that
2: so it was it was a process it was a process because when i was in um art school i you know i was doing I was experimenting with moving image from like single frame installation, and often like the subject matters that I was dealing with were like about childhood, about like multiple personalities, like in terms of like we're living more in a society where we have more avatars. So I was really interested in the fact that I'll um, be constantly sharing like a curation of ourselves. Um, so at that point. Being frank with you, often I'd use myself or my my friends because I didn't have any money. <laughs> mm. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna try and do something experimentally. But then I realised, um, you know, if I when I'm watching cinema and I'm like, oh my god, I love this, and I you know I I love uh, someone like Chris Marker who is a French experimental film filmmaker, and he did this uh, photo series called uh, Jeté where it's an entire film told through photographs. Um, and seeing those kind of like tools was going, OK, how do I like, how do I elevate to a point that I can make a greater vision? Um, so initially I did is I, after leaving art school, went and worked in production to understand how to work in teams. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, I didn't like, I, you know, I didn't know what a DOP was. I didn't know what a focus was. Um, for me, it was like wreck, cut. Like that was genuinely my knowledge. Um and I but I would do is at the time is investigate and look at framing in cinema and look at why is that why is that filmmaker chosen that. So I would go through the loophole of like watching a lot of stuff, but I didn't know how to actually physically do it. So after leaving I went into production and learnt a lot about working in teams and then kind of came back to feeling like, oh, I can actually try and be a director now. So, yeah, it it took a bit of time. And then I basically, uh, to go to film school, that was another bigger journey. And I can go into that, (laughs) which was that, um, so I was part of this emerging creatives program at the Hospital Club, which is sadly, bless them, because of COVID, it's been shut down now. But it was an amazing little program in um, Covent Garden. And what happens is you, uh, when they select creative, they give you a mentor. And my mentor at the time was uh, Pinky Gundell from um, Film London. Also, she's Steve McQueen's art film producer. Oof. Wow. She, you know, she's worked with him on his biggest works and she kind of said to me like, Riffy, I really feel you uh, have a really strong vision, but like you've also got an instinct for narrative. And I feel, have you investigated that further? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to go into narrative. It's just a question of how, because I feel, Often when people see my work, they're thinking it's very, very art world or experimental. Sometimes not accessible, more in an arts crowd. But I want to be more accessible. I want it to be, in a way, people can connect as a human being. Um, and so she just kind of said, suggested, "Would you go to? Um, would you go to somewhere like NFTS?" And I was like, "Would they take me? <laughs> I like honestly, yeah. would they take me? Because it's so tough to get there, and then also." I'm not like straight up linear, you know? And she was like, I kind of think they're going to like you more for it. And I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. So then I got recommended
1: to apply. Before you applied to the NFTS and you, did you, had you made, how many, uh, it was just experimental films that you'd you'd made up until that point, up until 2018?
2: Uh, I'd made one, one narrative short. I'd made one, uh, but majority wise um, were experimental. Uh, I'd worked a lot in commercial world as well because you've got to pay the bills um so i i I was generating my production experience. It was elevating quite a lot because I'd worked on a lot of projects. but in terms of my thumbprint as a director, I'd had more in experimental one narrative, and I kinda could see I needed to build more for people to understand that part of my voice
0: cool so yeah you're at nfts and cut to like a few years later and you've been expect you've been doing you've been kind of getting more to grips i imagine with narrative filmmaking but you've still been you know able to uh to run with your experimental filmmaking side um can you talk a bit about i guess the process of you know what kind of work you've been doing since leaving the nfts
2: so after leaving obviously look when you graduate it's such a weird feeling because you go back into the real world (laughs) and Um, when you're at the school, you are kind of in a bubble because it's so intense for two years. You come out and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, you go back into where you came from. I guess a bit more different because the world has changed a lot. Um, But I have to say what prepared me was there were, like, there were some meetings we had with agents uh, before leaving school. Um, and, And I think that advice we got was really useful to me because it was a bit like, look you're going to leave the school it's going to be a great time for you to to get the attention of people but at the same time don't freak out if it doesn't happen immediately because it's you know everyone's path is different um so I I was very realistic with myself where I was like I'm not actually going to like run I've got to observe what I want Mm -hmm. um and at that point it was very clear for me I really wanted to get Signed with an agency or get to a place where someone who understands I am a hybrid filmmaker, but you know, I have a long term vision to go into long form TV and film. Um, and film, I would say first because I've always loved cinema. <laughs> um, so yeah, when I left, I'm going to be frank with you, the, the pandemic happened two weeks later, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it was initially like we graduated and like we had the biggest ceremony and everything and then it was like Independence Day where suddenly something was coming through the clouds and we were like but what's that? Oh, right,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> um. So I, I have to say I kind of loved it the first three months because I hadn't slept in like two years so I was like
0: <laughs>
2: I'm actually all right. <laughs>
0: yeah taking a well-earned break yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah. um, I kind of appreciated having the rest and also was like, okay, you know what? Um, This could maybe prepare me to think about what I really need. Mm -hmm. So, um, and at that time, I also had, I was elected as the first student president at NFTS. So my job was to also then help the students to actually get their films made in a pandemic. Yeah. So in a way, that was great because that training I got there helped me inform when I got into production because now I was like, not phased by it um but I would say my focal point after graduating was to focus on my feature film idea um which actually is based on my grad film which was Al Sarab which I wanted to make into a long form and um and then just started like you know I I think uh, I started just kind of preparing what other ideas I could be working on because when I start pitching to companies or when I start talking to people they always say like come with a solid idea but if you've got Things in your pocket be prepared because mm-hmm. you never know you might find someone else that's more interested or attuned to something else um but i would say my busiest year has been last year and this year
1: mm-hmm.
2: um this
1: can i go this, back to the agent sorry i just uh, the yes. agent's point because i think that's really really interesting for for people that are graduating or people that are trying to get in you know and are getting directing so, works that you know so you're saying you were saying that you were, you were looking for someone who understood you as a hybrid filmmaker who was going to support you and so mm-hmm. you're si- you're signed with independent so, yeah yeah so did you go uh, go around to them did they approach you how did that whole process work and then how did you you know find someone that did then appreciate okay this is what you want to do and um, we're going to support you on that lo- long journey so i think it's i think it's really important to have that support uh, like a support yeah. network and having the right agency behind you, I think is super super important, so I'd be really intrigued to the process that you went through
2: yeah it it, it didn't happen how i ex- how I expected it, but it happened nonetheless <laughs> but i think that but that's what I mean about this whole process about getting an agent i think um it's it's a lot more um it's also about how you have your expectations about it so for me i I definitely came out of school thinking once you get an agent that doesn't solve your problem, it's actually about how much you're prepared to hustle because they'll hustle if you hustle. Um, you know, on on being on their books is a great thing, but it doesn't solve, you know, now that you're listed doesn't mean then you have more credibility. You'll have credibility if they can fight for you for certain things. So I, in a way, when I was starting to have meetings with agents, my first thing was trying to work out My first question was, if I wasn't in the room, how would you describe me? Because right now, you're gonna tell me what I wanna hear, but if you were to then pitch me elsewhere, I need to know what that is. And I remember I had two agents meetings and they were like, that's a really, really bloody good question. And I was like, well, you know, if I, I'm prepared to do the hard work, but I kind of, um, yeah, I need to know whatever's happening beyond where I'm not in the room.
0: Yeah, totally. Um,
2: it's in sync with what I'm, my values and stuff. Um, and if it's an elevation, then sure,
0: I'll appreciate that. So
2: the- It kind of, like... um,
0: it just to interrupt as well, it, it um, it's like a thing, the agent then knows that you know your worth, when like you ask a question like that. Whereas, you know, I'm sure it's quite tempting. I've certainly been in this situation before where it's been like, I don't want to say anything. That you know, like just just take me on, man. Just take, you know, mm. you know this sort of thing. But if you ask a question like that, or if you're coming into it with that sort of confidence, then you know it's clear that you know your worth and you you have high expectations. I suppose.
2: Well, yeah, I think I think it's just about like I've I've definitely faced in the past where like you know people could assume or pigeonhole you, right and. And it can happen, you know, in in all aspects of industry. So it, I guess it's not to say I can't control everything, but I could certainly at least be able to say, you know, um, what's your initial impression of me? Because even if you have something different, if I like it, even I'm like, okay, we could work with that, or I could I could build myself up to that mm-hmm.
0: because,
2: um, but because then there's an agreement between us. So. With Independent, how I got in touch with them was that, um, so I'd spoken to a few different agencies and then I'd had a meeting with an agent from CAA. She was just about to become a big agent herself because she was assisting for um, an agent. And then she- Sorry to interrupt, just quickly. Was, was this
0: off the back of um, al Sarab then, the yes. final film? This is where these, these things, okay, cool.
2: Exactly, because yeah, because when you show your grad film, um, at NFTS because at the end of the well, it's like in February normally in recent yeah. years, it's had to be like May because of COVID. Um, the moment you show your grad from, it's, it's open to industry, and yeah. that's very much a time the school says it's like you should this is your moment to get headhunted. Da, 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 da. And you know, there were classmates of mine, let's be frank, some who got signed straight away. I uh, obviously others were <laughs> freaking out, and I was just like, you know what, I'm really happy for them. I've got to find my own way. It, it is what it is, and um. So I didn't sign until a good six months later. But many people still say that's actually really quick, um, because of all the meetings I had. And then I basically got recommended from an agent in CAA, who then put me in touch with this agent who I'm signed with now, independent. So basically, look, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna admit this. So basically, the agent that I signed with in the end, yeah. Um. I first had a meeting with her through Zoom and I said to her, I would really love to meet her up front because all the meetings I was having were through Zoom and it was coming to a point where the, you know, the lockdown thing wasn't, you know, it was opening up a bit in summer. So I was like, if you don't mind even sitting social distance, it'd be really cool. So she was like, do you have any questions for me? Because what we can do is I'll come and meet you, but I'll have, you can ask me anything you want. And I said, okay. Oh, wow. Um, And I was like, okay, so I thought, since you asked me that, I'm going to be quite bold. But I'd also thought, you know why? When you're at a point in the world where you don't, like, have anything at front right now, you're like, actually, I I have to be bold at this stage because, you know, it's either a yay or a nay. So I I made a questionnaire (laughs) and sent it to her. (laughs) And it was on yellow, it was a yellow document that basically asked her, like, what's your name? Uh, what do you drink in the day? Or what do you drink at night? Do you agree pineapple should be on pizza? Or what? I won't judge you. <laughs> if oh, I love today. that. <laughs> that like, is a ballsy move. <laughs> but I won't judge you if you like it. Like, fair enough. <laughs> and then kind of ask more serious questions like, what was, uh, how would you describe me if I wasn't in the room? Um, what's the first, uh, as an agent, what's your way of communicating best is it me contacting you or through your like assistant and then just also asked her about her journey because I noticed she had a background in literature so I was like if I wanted to do this kind of project blah, 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 blah. and so when I sent it to her she sent me an email which was just capitals obsessed like oh, this is <laughs> sick and then I met her and she had printed it out and she's like, I'm gonna answer every single one of these. And I was like, Brilliant, <laughs> let's go. Um, and we did. And 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 she was just like, you know, this alone just shows me your character, which is yeah. that you're you're actually and I was like, Well, it took me some balls to do it because I would never do that. But I think in the climate of things, yeah. I'm like, actually we, yeah. we should push. Um So yeah, I'd her these questions and then she, you know, she took the time to actually answer them. She did say to me, she was like, I kind of feel like you're, you are an author, but you are collaborative. You could work, you know, in TV very seamlessly as well, but you do have a very distinctive voice. Um, and, you know, I felt already then a comfort with her that Mm -hmm. she was now like, you know, also she was hungry still to push and, you know, I could see think often when one of the reasons why it took me a little bit longer was I was actually researching a lot of these agents Uh, and I think that's a huge really important thing to do is people get Mm. caught up on the agency it's like actually who's the agent you want because they you know their representation and their kind of presence speaks volumes more than you know where they come from so whether that's Castorotto or uh, United or all these kind of places that person's to be your representative,
1: you get you want a long term relationship with them as well, so it's got to be like those questions, like they seem silly on the surface, but I think <laughs> they're actually super, super important. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah. actually, if we're gonna, you know, I want to be doing this for the rest of my life, and if mm. you're gonna be the person that's supporting me, I want to know that we're gonna get on and that you get me and you get what I'm trying to do. So, I think that's a really, really, really cool way of doing it, actually. Great, <laughs> like a smart way of doing it, <laughs> and,
0: then, and then were you so yeah, this these kind of come conversations with, with agents were off the back of Al-Sarab, so your, your mm-hmm. uh, dissertation movie for the NFTS. Um, was, were these emails from these agents coming in from them, or were you, like, emailing out to, to them? Uh, how was it working? Was it a mix of both?
2: A mix, I had a mix of both. So I mm-hmm. had definitely... Um, I had people reaching out. I, I, I would say on the week that I showed the film, I already had, like, two meetings that week. And, you know, that was great. It was really at that point it's really nice just to be like, Oh wow, you came and saw my film and like you're really really eager to wanna support me and I, I think at that point I was like I was very honest as well that I was like, Look, it's just been a week. I kinda need the time to yeah. uh, to work out what's right for me because I can get the impulse at that point. Everyone's like, I wanna get started, yeah, right? So
0: true. So, that must have so... been really hard to like not give in to that in being like, Ah oh, yes. yes, you know, straight away.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I think yeah I just I felt like it's that thing isn't it you know when you get like a membership or like um a promotion and you're like oh my god I gotta use this now and
1: yeah
2: that was the thing that I was like actually hold and I'm not gonna do this because like you said it's a long-term thing you're thinking about the longer term and um at that point as a shorter term I could have you know because you can change agents in your lifetime for sure, it can happen. You know, you might find it worked for you at a certain point and then it might not work for you later. Um, but I think as I've got older, I'm just like actually kind of need that stability of knowing what I'm getting myself into. Mm, um, yeah. because film is volatile enough,
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, it's a business that's so volatile. So, where I can have a bit of anchor, I'm like, I'd like yeah.
1: that. <laughs> I think true. also there's a there's a um... Because you're, you know, emerging filmmakers, it's you're kind of vulnerable. I know in like the mm. commercial space, you're really vulnerable to production companies and things, and you want to have a production company or an agency that's on your on your side that gets you and isn't just using you. Um, yeah. that As well, that so it's really yeah. Most, I mean, tough. Like when you're starting out, so mm. what totally. advice would you have to someone that's trying to get signed? Then would you say? What would you say to... Because a lot of the listeners that we've got are kind of making short films and, you know, you know, getting out into the world. So I think that's quite a good... Good stepping point, I guess, for them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, look, there, there's there's many ways you can get signed. Um, I would say the first point is it's research. Uh, it's about making work and putting it out into the world in which, like, um, you know, obviously if something does really well, great. And even if it doesn't, it's you've got to be able to show you are trying. And you're creating work as a, a body for yourself, um, as well as that can be accessible. But I think the biggest thing is realizing it's a it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes time. It really does, uh, especially when you're wanting to go into long form. The average time it takes to get one is like three to five years, mm-hmm. and that's you know when you first hear that you're like, oh, what to do yeah. <laughs> to do a video form is going to take that long, but I mean, I think things are changing a little bit now because we've got more SVODs who are now, you know, doing features as well, but there's different challenges with that as well. And so Mm. even though we're in a time where there's more content needed more than ever, um, I would say, yeah, you've just got to be mindful of the fact that it will take time and it doesn't mean it will take ages, but be patient with yourself, you know, Mm. keep trying. And then the other thing I would say is that there's also a lot of amazing opportunities coming up now where you can like generate production experience, um, like screen skills has been amazing. I also, at NFTS you have um, a lot more short courses as well as like the main MA programs. But if you don't wanna do the school way, it's also totally fine. Like I'm a big believer, you could also do it completely by yourself. But if you do that, then it's really important to network, to build yeah. collaborators. Yeah. Um, it's okay to ask for help, you know? Because I think yeah. sometimes making can be quite lonely where you're thinking, oh shoot, do I have to do this by myself? Or I don't have the money to pay someone. Then it's like, okay, well, how could you generate a collective of collaborators where you kind of help each other? Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's lots of lots of ways I think filmmakers can take steps um, in realising, like, they have a lot of power, but they can
0: also share that power. I think this might be quite a good uh, merge into, like, the agency is a sort of silver bullet, Um, you know, so once Mm. I get repped by this big agent, then everything will be fine. Yeah, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that and about, I suppose, yeah, how... how, uh, how you have to, how you have to continue to work hard, and, and what what that agency gives you versus maybe what it what it doesn't give you, and what the misconceptions are.
2: I would say is look when you when you get on a big agency, uh, of course people think of reputation. They think, oh yeah. wow, you know, you're part of this bo- big body. However, it also can have its pros and cons, like you just said. Um, and I think the real, I think the first the misconception is is that if you get an agent that it solves your problem, it doesn't it actually what it does is is that you are more a position where when you start contracting for work Mm. you are going to have a person who can check your contracts but also bear in mind it's a business relationship they are going to make money from you so the more money you make the more interested they're going to (laughs) be you know let's be real about it they're going to be people who can support you but it is a very specific relationship um and of course they want you to succeed but But they do, you know, it's not in a bad way. Everybody has their agenda, essentially. Um, So what I would say is that when you go into a big agency, that's why I always say, like, look at the agent who you're going for. Because you might find there's, like, a really big wig agent and they won't have the time to actually work with you. You'll be in their books, but you won't necessarily be their priority. Mm. But then you might find a younger agent who's like, I'm so hungry, I'm going to push. So that's why I would say is it comes down to where they're at also in their career, to be able to then go, oh, I've seen this talent, I wanna do something with it. Um, and you know, there's even agents out there who aren't working with agencies. They have used to work with agencies or created something independent. And of course, when you first come across that, you're thinking, what's the credibility of that? The research of that, I always say to people is go on IMDB Pro and check this agent's list. Look at, are these people like similar to you? Are they not? Mm. Uh, could you be the gap in the market? And um, and you, you kind of, I, I think also the, the best advice I got from agents before was that, you know, we get people contact us all the time. Why should we care, right? You've got to give me a reason to care. Or you've got to show that you showed some interest and done your research in me for me to see a connection in you. I certainly found for me, um, one of the reasons once I signed, obviously, you're thinking, okay, everything's going to get sorted out, da, 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 da. It's actually where the hustle counts. I, you know, I've always been um, a person that's, you know, when I was working more in the commercial world as well, was hustling for work in a way. And so when I came out of school, contacted my contacts straight away and was like, do you have work going? I want to get back into it. Cause got to, you know, you've got to eat. But at the same time, <laughs> I needed that time to also develop my own stuff. So for example, this year, um, was really busy year because I was on... So basically I did the shadowing scheme and second unit for Top Boy for the first block.
0: Right, right.
2: When I got called, I also got offered another one from ITV on the same day. Oh, wow. And straight away, my agent was like, oh, wow, okay, you've really been hustling. The thing with television is, is that it's so credit-driven. That, you know, even if I'm being put for stuff, they're like, oh, what's the experience of television? So now I can say, like, look, I have been on a credible TV set for four episodes. I've done second unit. Uh, I know how it runs. So she's like, that's already for your CV much more of an upsell because now I can go, yeah, she, she knows how it goes. Yeah. Um so, so
1: did you start shadowing on top boy and then you got second unit on top boy is that how that worked you went straight in or was it a different tv show that you second were you a second unit on
2: it was the, for the same show it was it yeah. was for top boy so um basically it's part of the scheme so that if you uh, once you become a mentee you also get to do top Boy because you then work with the dop mentee uh. and um no, it was a really great experience. Like the first week I thought I was going to die. Cause I was just like, how am I going to last 10 weeks? Like, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then towards the end, I, I, I really was like, oh no, what am I going to do with all this energy? I would say TV, especially, there's a lot more mm. steps you'd need to take as a director in terms of, you either have like that lucky break of you've done a short and it's like done amazingly. And then you go into it or you have to get that step in into um into the
1: tv world yeah it's interesting I I I was shadowing this summer on a show and it was interesting talking to the director's assistant Mm -hmm. because that's his he and he's made some shorts and and all sorts of stuff and that's kind of his way in and he's learning so much from the directors that he's assisting and then from there he's hoping to go second unit it's like you say there's loads of these steps and (laughs) <laughs> yeah all of that it's crazy it's crazy so what did you um by shad- like actually actually shadowing what was um one of the big things you learned as a director because obviously you're going from experimental to to the more narrative side as well mm-hmm. and obviously tv is super super obviously heavy heavily narrative yeah what what was one of the biggest things you probably learned from the director that you you were shadowing on that first block
2: so I, I was shadowing Miriam Roger, who, he was, she was actually a year above me at NFTS, and she's a great director, really great, and, because um, she'd done the scheme, the shadowing scheme in 2018, I believe. What is the scheme. scheme
0: called, by the way, just for, for the listeners, in case they want to check it out? Or... I,
2: I guess it's kind of like the director-mentee scheme for, for Top Boy, so they've done it ever since they went to Netflix. Okay. Um, right. So Miriam was on the first season as a mentee, and then... She directed an episode last year and then she directed four for this season.
1: Oh, wow! And Ooh.
2: so it was really great to follow you know, basically, a, a really up and coming director of following how they have to navigate because you know, if you still have the same kind of things you deal with in the short, right? But this is a lot bigger, you've got mm. a team of over 100 people, and um, so it's, it's a very well oiled machine in that sense because you've got. The production, you've got uh, the execs, you've got the director team, you've got, you know, the camera team. Uh, What I would say, my biggest observation in television is that it's very much a writer's world. Um, So if you are not the showrunner director, you know, as a director, you are very much in a space where you are entering their galaxy. So there is a framework. Um, And that framework basically, it doesn't mean it can't bend, you could bend it, but there is a framework. Um, and I would say, uh, it, it, in essence, the biggest thing I learned was you have to choose your battles very carefully. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it's like you will come up against certain things. And it's like, OK, how how mm. do I navigate this? Because at the end of the day, I've still got to get this in the can. Um, and, I, and I found that interesting because you know there's battles you have to fight fight for anyway when you're making a film where it's like what's the most important thing for the story what's the most important thing that I want what's my thumbprint in it but obviously when you're doing it for such a big show uh it's not just your voice you've got x amount of voices around you you'll have the executives you have Netflix you'll have da, da 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 and so um you have to very much channel and make sure that information is taken into consideration and go okay right you know even though I want to direct a version of this in a directorial way I've got to consider the notes that are being said for production so um that scale and also like seeing like two three cameras being used in very interesting ways because you know I get it they need to get loads of coverage but Mm -hmm. there were times where they used the camera where I was like oh wow that's a completely different perspective so actually it's not it's not limiting the situation. It's actually making that edit more interesting because it, it gives you complete um, variant geography.
1: Yeah, they're not just getting coverage for coverage. It's, it's yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah Doing something for the story.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, like, I thought that was really interesting. But, um, yeah, I think the role as a director on TV, you know, it is, you are, in a way, kind of also having to be a conductor. hmm In a sense that you've got to take in those energies and then go, okay, what, how do I still get the vision I need to get taking all those notes? Whereas I think in cinema, it would be a more director's medium because you're, you know, you've got to to push it forward, but Mm. they're becoming more hybrid, I guess.
1: I was gonna ask about, I thought, um, go into uh, your inspirations behind the films that you make. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was, cause I haven't really made experimental films and I was really intrigued as to where like the seeds of those ideas come from and then how you kind of like nourish it and build it, build it out from there for, for a float, for example, and, mm-hmm. and Medea. Um, I was just really intrigued as to like first off, where does that come from, that initial idea, and then how did you build it out from 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 there?
2: Right. So um, that's, yeah, I get asked a lot. And then I guess sorry,
1: sorry, before you start, and then yeah. I guess you could maybe go into how uh, it differs from your more narrative stuff like Al Sarab as well.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I've always been drawn to experimental cinema because I think that was just how I got into it. You know, when I was making it. Um, with a camcorder, it was just that thing of like, you've shot something, what's the meaning of it? Or what's the eye of it? What's the perspective of it? What are you trying to say? So I kind of came from it where I was almost analyzing it more because I'm like, every time I'm shooting something, I am saying something. Um, mm. And what am I, you know, I have to think about what I'm saying. Um, so, you know, a lot of the people I was very inspired by when I started out was like Maya Darin, um, Steve McQueen, Larissa Sansa, and uh, Shireen Nishat, who used um, the moving image in their work. They had like a photographic element, but they used the moving image to very much kind of delve in the themes of things they were looking at. And I think a lot lot of the time, many people think experimental doesn't mean structured. I actually completely disagree with that. I think it's more structured than you think, because um, you have to have such an anchor of reality Uh, one anchor, if that anchor of emotion or theme that you're absolutely committed to and that is believable, then you can absolutely abstract everything around it because that's real and um, there was actually a really good interview I saw about Michel Gondry about Eternal Sunshine where he basically said if you didn't believe Kate and Jim's character the film wouldn't make sense so Mm. for me their relationship was the reality which is why I could then completely go crazy with it. Because the moment that chemistry broke, you're like, oh my God, I want them to be back together again. So even though, you know, his structure in that is insane, you know, you've got like four or five storylines connecting together. Um, but the essence and anchor he's talking about is basically love and heartbreak. And, and so you've memory. got a
1: theme that, you're, that, that is the, the thing that you're basing in reality and then... You kind of yeah. go out from there. Yeah. Okay.
2: When I did a float, for example, a float, so I'd met uh, a Yumi Lenoir. She's basically a Japanese performance artist. And I was very drawn to her because she has multiple personalities. And she has very different personas every day in her career, in her work. And um, I wanted to do an art film that looked at a question of are these personas real or are they what she imagines them to be and do you so... mean
0: do you mean by multiple personalities that she 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 wasn't she didn't have like a multiple personality disorder it was just like she just had different lives do you mean do you mean that
1: or, or characters that a, kind she of, or...
0: a
2: kind of a borderline between the two i'd say okay okay yeah um and i i found that fascinating because basically, she was a very high-powered trader in the city. But wow. she was also the, a geisha pole dancer and an expert in shibari. And, like, you know, it kind of made sense yeah. to me, because in Japan, you have X amount of subcultures forming all the time. And he, she was like... But she she didn't have a world in which everybody knew about all of them. She knew everybody with one persona each at a time. Hey. And I think she was even getting exhausted by it. That She was like, I would kind of actually want to get them in a hall... be one place. (laughs) I'm like, great, cool. Let's let's make a film about it. Um so yeah, so basically uh for me the reality was you had a you had a character who who's basically questioning who they are. And and then that film uh when I did it, because you know it was a for me at this point I was like it's it's an elevated version of my experimental now because now it's working with a bigger team, it's working to do more visuals that are more, much more decadent. Um, and so, but it did really well in the experimental festival. So it went to, it got nominated at Aesthetica and then also like a lot of, it did really well actually in America,
0: interestingly. Oh, really. Um, yeah. It yeah, it did What's and it, and it, it screened at Piccadilly Circus as well, right? Yeah. Well,
2: yeah. My <laughs> so this was, um, so basically uh, Circa Days um, do this thing every, well, it's the second year now. So in 2021, they did it, I think in... maybe in 2020, I'm not sure. So Circa Days is a collaboration where they choose 30 artists worldwide um, to, uh, and it could be an episode from a film or like a full completed film that's like two and a half minutes. And they uh, the theme they had this year was a future world so i basically stand afloat this excerpt from afloat uh but talking about how um i was very interested in the fact that ayumi has x amount of personas so we're now and more in a society where we have more avatars more um curated versions of ourselves so when you Mm. see this performance is it real or is it an assimilated experience? Because we are now between the metaverse and the real world. And so when I submitted that, they were like, totally love this because mm-hmm. the enchantment is stunning. But if when I remember when we had to do this shoot, I was so nervous about it because it was a seven meter pole <laughs> that we had to then have inserted in this massive hall. If she dropped, do you know what I mean? Like she'd be
1: gone. Yeah.
2: So the amount of health and safety I had to do to make sure this poll was like legit safe.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so yeah, <laughs> the actual like doing it was terrifying, but like the enchantment is something else. <laughs>
1: yeah. So going um, uh, into your more your fiction, so like Sarab and things. Yeah. That obviously, it's a totally different world. Yeah. Um, how does your process differ in terms of like maybe the writing and the visuals and everything like that? Because it's a totally different, like your work is, you know, like those experimental films and the narratives obviously so different. So I was intrigued as to maybe it's a similar process. Maybe it does, you know, all ground in one theme or how, how does it differ?
2: So the story is actually inspired um, on my uncle. So my uncle was a captain of ships and he travelled all over the world. And then, basically, he would settle down, have a family, and then bugger off somewhere. Right, right yeah. Right. And so, um, when he... Uh, so my, and my mom like, hadn't spoken to him for a while, but then, basically, um, when he died, we found out he had three children that didn't know about each other. And oh. they then met at his funeral. And I found uh. that really powerful, because, um, basically, they, they all came from completely different parts of the world but also my uncle changed religion three times so their faiths were all the faiths that he became at that time. Um oh, and the one who looked like it the most so I'm I'm still very close to him now he um, he looks exactly like my uncle but he's Catholic so he grew up Catholic he's come into a country where basically you know when you bury someone Islamically you have to do it within twenty four to forty eight hours. So you not only have you got like a collision of like cultural difference, you've also got everyone's grief is like a pinball of like, oh, he left for you, he left for you, not for me. Da 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 da. And um so I kind of was like, how do I tell this story that's a very emotional story, but also the challenge of basically getting three estranged characters to connect at the end. So my process for this was I would say where it differed is that um mm-hmm. So I'd worked with a writer. So we worked um, together and in a way that was helpful for me because I was able to then channel through him to create a structure that was different to how I would normally write. Because when I do write, I often have to do is I have to like vomit it out and then create the structure or figure out visually how it ties. Whereas with him, he's now breaking it into structure in terms of the journey of the day. And like what it feels and means for each of those characters, and then you know I also wanted to shoot this in bloody Morocco because I was like <laughs> I wanted to be in the desert. The father is like the land, you know, da 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 da. And you know it was a it was a great thing to do, but it was obviously very challenging because um, it's forty degree heat. Uh, yeah. And whereas the interiors we shot the interiors in the UK, and heard. it was harder here because it was like 38 degrees and we were all melting. <laughs>
0: <True>. <laughs> oh my God.
1: And... Well, so um, why did you decide to do that then? So shooting the exteriors in Morocco, because you've also got the same cast in the interiors and the exteriors as well. So intrigued as to why why you'd-
2: I, I didn't want to, I wanted to shoot everything okay. overseas, but the school basically said to us, no, you, you can't afford to do both. You mm. have to, mm. you've got to split it up. Um, and I was like, ah, this is so annoying um no I ideally would have just loved to be there the whole time
1: and then so because i'm really interested in like actually shoot shooting abroad like mm-hmm. that in morocco um like a, a fiction project and did you did you hire local crew or was it literally it was people from the nfts they came out with you like everyone everyone came out to morocco and then everyone went back and they shot uh back in back in the uk as well and like so getting the permits to shoot there and all sorts of stuff like that it must be really, really challenging.
2: Definitely. Um, I mean, look, uh, my producer was amazing. He did a really great job because he, so basically if you're gonna shoot in Morocco, you need to have a fixer. You need to have someone mm. local because mm. um, there's a very big film industry in Morocco. Like it's used for oh. everything. So like in um, where we were shooting and also was is where the, the, the desert, um, this is where Lawrence of Arabia was shot and, you know, a lot of wow. Star Wars and big, big productions happened there. So in a way, they're used to filming that, but that therefore means you, if you're going to be shooting something. So, you know, when we came, <laughs> they're thinking we have a massive budget and they were like, we got pennies compared to these people. Man. And they were like, whoa, you guys are ambitious, but like, yeah. we got... <laughs> We got a, a great fixer there who then... So when we were in the UK, we had a UK team. We had to bring some of that team to Morocco, but then we had part of the team. So basically our gaffer and... Um, gaffer, fixer, and some of the sparks, but then we had to have a Moroccan team. Because right. I think also by law, if you shoot something in Morocco, you have to then try to at least have um, mm. someone in your team who's Moroccan. Um and what happened is, is when you have a fixer, they sort out all your paperwork. So okay. they kind of are the ones who get you kind of the the permits. Um, because also, if you get, if you're filming that and you don't have a permit, you know, you've got to get a way to navigate. <laughs> and the thing yeah. is, I have that experience because I did it once. I shot a music video in Morocco. And because my dates changed, they didn't change our permit in time. So I had to completely go guerrilla with that.
0: Whoa. And that just sounds meant, risky like, for Morocco, like, yeah. Oh, it
2: was super risky, it was super risky. So, yeah. this time I was like, and we're not doing that, I do not
0: want this. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you're hanging over you, I guess, right? Because yeah, no. yeah. yeah. they,
2: they have police officers like everywhere, right? So, you're right. like, so no, we did it the proper way, but it therefore meant, um, yeah, like to be honest, when we were going to go to Morocco, we thought we were going to have a much smaller team from the UK, but. Mm all of those students who were on our UK shoot fought to come to Morocco because they were like, We've, we we want to support the project. We want to come. So they, all of their departments then were like, okay, we'll support you to go. Um, you know, go there and then you're like, you have a 40 team crew in the freaking desert. And you're like, Jesus, this is a lot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the Moroccan team were lovely. They were really great because, you know, in, in some ways, we also had to be guided by them in terms of, knowing how to deal with the heat so as soon as we got there we're working with our um ad and that team going look you really don't want to be working at this hour it's so hot let's try and get mm. this first half of the day done take a break then and then go back to
1: it and go back oh, that's so interesting yeah. i am
0: mean, mad that you managed to like so and the fixer was that somebody that the lfts had a connection with like how did you find the fixer if that makes sense
2: so this is this is where um my producer came into hand. So like I do have a lot of contacts in Morocco. And to be honest, like the only reason we went to Morocco is because the regions I come from are too far. So I can't really yeah. go to like Bahrain or Bangladesh to shoot <laughs> what I want to do. Mm. If I was a documentary filmmaker, they may have let me go, but not as a fiction because you've got so yeah. many people to take. So Morocco was the closest and also Spain. So we were just kind of looking at desert areas in those countries. So my producer, I'd contact some of my friends who are in Morocco and then my producer did some more investigating and then he found this company where they are basically film specialists. They mm. they help productions set up there. And then, you know, got talking to the um, this fixer and was just basically like, look, we really need your help. Like, is there any way you could help us with this process? And then, you know, she kind of met with us cause she was like, "Why, when you do your recce, why don't you come here? And then we can have a chat about it. Cause she found this like location and, um, as soon as we got that, like, she just really liked us. We liked her. Um, and you know, also the access it just generated was completely different because now, mm. uh, it kind of took away the hurdle of having to then go to mm. a location company or to go to all of these things. She would had certain contacts because she knows there's other productions that
0: she's done that. Mm. See, One of the things we've been kind of talking about a fair bit in our recent podcasts is how to make this, sustainable career path over the long term, Mm. Uh Um, how difficult that can be, and how to avoid burning out or getting discouraged or getting jaded. Um, Mm. We wondered if, since you graduated, you had another job to support yourself, or whether or not you've just been, you know, doing filmmaking, uh, nonstop. And, and yeah, maybe your perspective on that, or having that other thing to kind of keep you afloat, no pun intended. (laughs) yeah
2: Yeah. so no for this yeah look filmmaking it it is about juggling it really Mm. is because um so what i do is i also edit and i also um have to work on like commercial briefs as well as uh some i've done some teaching work as well and you know it Obviously, when you get that kind of consistent gig, it's amazing. Teaching
0: film or teaching and just generally in schools, or like...
2: so teaching. So I did some teaching at Ravensbourne, which was basically oh, uh, cool. what well, was more so looking at their um, portfolios and then actually giving them advice about how to make it more accessible industry wise. So I'd look at their websites, I'd look at their show rules and their material, and then just be like, "That's not working," or "This is working." What are you saying about yourself? Um, just so that whenever they're putting themselves out for work, you're actually pitching yourself at a place where, okay, I get what you're doing. Um, So I I was part of this visual tools uh, course, which you basically help them to prepare for industry. And then I've done some mentoring work with B3 Media, BFI Academy, where you work with young filmmakers to make their films. So, you know, I always try to give back where I can because you know when I was growing up I kind of wish I also got to do those things so when I see it I'm always like of course if I can help in any way um but yeah it is it is a juggle you know it it's something that I question daily in this career because sometimes I I do wonder where it's like when it's good it's amazing when it's Mm. bad it's like bad right because it's not (laughs) consistent
0: that's a good way of describing it it's volatile Yeah. Do
2: you know what I mean? It's like there's days where you're like, oh, I could go and have a nice dinner, do this and that, I'm going to pay for this. And then one day you're like, I don't know if I could get the train. This would be bad. (laughs) Yeah. I think the choices is, I think the way to see it is, there's nothing wrong with like, it actually makes you very adaptable and it's good to have more than one skill. That's why I say to filmmakers that if you shoot, and it doesn't mean you have to become a DOP, but what I will say to every filmmaker, if you can learn to edit, edit because mm. it's really important in the long run when you start working with editors. And if you can monetize in it somehow, that's really good. So for me, I can monetize as an Adobe editor. I couldn't as an average because I just find the whole crisis too long, okay? And there's better people for it. You can understand that system. But if it's fast turnover in terms of like commercial stuff or like, you know, cause I, I used to work at um, the Smalls and I worked at um, some other agencies like Mother as well, where it, it'd be turning out content for them, that's great because you're getting a decent daily rate, but also it's like, you know? So I think I think the ideal is obviously if you can get something part-time whilst you're building towards your main thing, because like, you know, a lot of filmmakers out there always say at the beginning, they have to juggle because at that point they didn't have that commission yet. And obviously if you get it, amazing um but even once you get it it's not that streamlined that you just suddenly have x amount of money in your bank account like no man it's a (laughs) process. it's it's gonna it's gonna come like gradually um so i would say like you know to be fair i also know people who do a job that's completely different to the film world and they then have but they know that their agenda is film why because they're like i actually need something that doesn't stress me out to the point where I, when I can then have that time where I dedicate it to that, that's my commitment. And, you know, someone like Rose Glass, for example, who did um, St. Maud, uh, which was her, her debut feature, she talks about she was working as a cinemaster for a very long time before it came out. And in a way, she was like, I was committed to that. Why? Because I could watch films, I could get paid, and then also have the time to really do what I wanted to do. Then be overly stressed by something else. So I think it comes down to what kind of approach and person you are.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It is just about who you are, I suppose, and what what will work for you. Because for some people, the maybe the cinema rusher might be a bit maybe not quite stimulating enough in it from a work perspective. But for like, others, like her, you know, it gave her probably the the creative you know mind freedom to to focus on other work.
2: Also, like you know, if you're doing if you're the other type of personality where you're making content like bear in mind that's that's such a great way to keep practicing and elevating your skill because you're still generating a body of work yeah and you will probably see the progression of that over time because you started on something i remember when i started out like commercial world if i showed like they're not even on my website anymore stuff that i did before to now because the the elevation change is massive um you wouldn't have seen it if you didn't do it if you know what I mean Mm
0: -mm.
1: I was I had an interesting conversation with someone who was saying that because he makes he's making films as well and he he was like I've got to also enjoy what I'm doing now like you know because I can't rely my whole life on getting a big break um you know and it's good to you know have the ambition to to and the belief that that's going to happen but he's like I've also got to be you know liking and enjoying what I'm doing now uh, to an extent you know um, so yeah. It's, yeah it's it's just really tough when you're starting out
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to find that thing you know uh, but once you've found it I think it is really it takes a, a weight off for sure cool should we come to our our final question mm. our favourite question here at short films a big questions uh, Will
1: do you want to ask it? we ask all of our guests um, what is their favourite short film or a short film that's really impacted them and kind of stuck with them after watching it
2: oh Wow, that's, that's a tough one. Is that like any time period, right?
0: Any time period.
2: Any time period. Okay, okay. That, well, okay. So if that's the case, I would yep. say Le Jete. I would say Legite. Because um, that whole film is photographs. There's only one moving image.
0: Okay. Who's the, do I, you know who the d- director is off the top of your head? Is that, is that French? Chris Marker. Chris
2: Marker. Chris Marker. Yeah. Um, I found that film very powerful because it's about time travel. And it's about... So basically, this film inspired 12 Monkeys.
0: No way. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And um, so Terry Gilliam, like, he was obsessed with this this short film. Because it's, what, 20, 25 minutes? When I watched it, I was blown away because I was like, you... you we've travelled time. And it's it's photographs. It's incredible. Um... And you basically see, like, it's worth watching, but you see a character who discovers their fate in quite a shocking way. But the the one shot in it where it's moving, it's a very beautiful shot where it's about love. Um, mm. And, yeah, I think what, what just kind of blew my mind, there is that my mind travelled and I'm seeing movement, but it's still. OK. It took me well- somewhere else. And, yeah.
0: All right. How do you spell legit Legité? La uh, it would
2: be Lajete, yeah, Lajete, yes. I think that's the okay, one Okay, so yeah, like la.
0: L-A-J-E-T-E Okay
2: Yeah, I just uh, notice the use of sound in it, because it might not be moving, but every sound has uh, really kind of gets things in motion for you, because it's basically the cuts in it and the next change and stuff like that So, um, yeah I would say that was one of probably the most profound ones I've seen that sticks to my
0: mind. Awesome. That sounds very (laughs) cool. Wicked. Well, I think that, that concludes the podcast. Um, So yeah, thank you so much. That's been like, you know, really, really fascinating. And it's great to have like, to talk through like experimental filmmaking versus narrative filmmaking. And I think that's, you know, that's a really interesting insight for our our listeners to have. So thank you so much for, for coming on there.
1: So I nice meeting you, Riffy. Um, you yeah, but awesome. And good luck with all of the all the TV stuff, everything.
2: Thank you so much.. Thank you.